I'm Autumn Lockett. And this is Mitch Randall. And you're listening to Good Faith Weekly. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. And on this episode, Autumn, I'm going to catch up as well as talk about the latest news. It appears that President Trump knew very early on during the pandemic that the virus was very contagious and said nothing to the citizens of this country, according to Bob Woodward in his latest book. We're also going to talk about the Kenosha, Wisconsin shooting, as well as the wildfires out in California. Later on in the episode, we're going to be interviewing our special guest, Sheriff Eric Higgins, who is the first African-American sheriff elected to that office in Pulaski County, Arkansas. So stay tuned. Autumn, how are you doing this week? Everything going well in your house? In our house, yes. In our country, not so much. Oh. I've decided that 2020 needs each week labeled like when you were a kid reading a chapter book and how each chapter had a title. Yes. And the title of this week is Liar, Liar, California's on Fire. (laughs) That is so apropos Um, and so sad at the same time. Oh, my goodness. Um, We talked to one of our columnists and, and partners with Good Faith Media, Reverend Jim Hopkins this week. He is a pastor out in the Bay Area in Northern California. And he's just, he's told us story after story. In fact, uh, Jim's going to be writing a column about what's going on in Northern California to be released next week at goodfaithmedia.org. But he's talked about pastors losing their houses and just the devastation that is underway in Northern California right now. I mean, the other day in Southern California, in Los Angeles, the high temperature was 121 degrees. What is going on? Well, it's not climate change, so you can just quit peddling your liberal agenda to me, Mitch. Are you just trying to say that God is punishing the West Coasters for being so far left? Yes. I am. I am actually, no, I'm not saying that at all. I, uh, it, it's just insane to me. And I feel like we're all sort of desensitized to tragedy right now. You wake up and you flip on your TV and you're like, okay, what's exploded? What's been shot? Um, who's lying? Who's corrupt? And what's on fire today? It's not, it's not, is something it's where. You're absolutely right. And what's so frustrating to me about the situation out in California, as well as in other uh, other particular areas, as well as other issues, is that we are seeing the evidence of climate change occur and unfold right before our eyes. I mean, this is a direct result of climate change. And we're just... There are people in leadership, there are people in this country that continue to deny its existence and to ignore the ramifications. If there was one moment in the last four years that probably has encapsulated the the whole premise of where we are as a culture now is when Kellyanne Conway used the phrase alternative facts. There are no such thing. Nope. And when you look at these wildfires in California, and they continue year after year. I was talking to a friend of mine out in San Francisco earlier this morning, and she was saying, this is happening again and again. And every year, every year, 
we're battling these wildfires and they're getting worse and worse because of climate change. And the evidence continues to mount, but we have people in this country and around the world that continue to deny the facts, even though the facts are right there before their eyes. And it is maddening, absolutely maddening. And Mitch, in that statement right there, you could have been talking about climate change. You could have been talking about the coronavirus. You could have been talking about racism. You could have been talking about a whole list of issues right now that people are like, nope, I can't see it. Let me put my hands. It's like when you were a little kid playing hide and seek and you would close your eyes and hope no one else could see you. It just be it, like they can just completely deny that this is happening. They're absolutely correct. And let's just call it for what it is, Autumn. It is absolutely 100% lies. They are buying and perpetuating and trying to sell lies as truth. The fact that they want to deny climate change, that they want to uh, shrug off the, uh, the seriousness of coronavirus, it is the peddling of lies because they want to continue the status quo. They want to continue to remain in power, to uh, make certain that everybody remains in this caste system that they have created. And it is absolutely time for a significant change, not only in this country, but around the world, because we can no longer afford to head down this path of lies and deceit. And there is no greater evidence that they're peddling lies than the news that surfaced this week about Bob Woodward's new book. When Bob Woodward has on tape President Trump early on in the pandemic, and I think it was February, right? Yeah, February of 2020, telling Woodward on tape that he knew that this was an airborne virus and that it was bad. And then he goes out. Yeah. Yeah. Worse than the flu. And then he goes out in public to a campaign rally and talks about that. It was a hoax. He is nothing but a bold face liar. And anybody who continues to support this president is supporting the lies and deceit that he has been. And his administration has been, uh, trying to sell us for the last four years, and I am fed up with it. Oh, same. I feel like there's a whole group of people that clearly never read the emperor's new clothes. Yeah, and what what you're what's even even more maddening you're so is that man. I'm so flustered. <laughs> I mean, because <laughs> I'm really upset about this. I mean, I because these. I mean, what we have in Woodward's tapes are the Nixon tapes. I mean, it, yeah. The irony is not lost on me no, that we have the did. same reporter, uh, you know, providing a lot of this information and reporting it uh, to the country that the, in this moment on, on, on this one particular tape, on this one particular issue, we see, we see who Donald Trump truly is. And he does not care about the citizens of this country. One no. iota. All he cares about is himself and how he can con- control and maintain power for himself. That is simply his main objective. And whoever he hurts, whoever he kills through his uh, negligence, he just does not care, does not care. And so it is so time for people to stand up to him. And I beg, I plead with my Republican 
brothers and sisters, to stand up against this man. He is destroying your party and, and sucking every ounce of integrity that the Republican Party ever had out from under you. Please stand up. It is time to take a stand. This, this is the moment. This is the time. It is. It is. And I, I just continue to go back to the pillars. I was raised in a Republican house, continue to go back to the things that were important to the Republican family I grew up in. And he is the antithesis of every single one of them. He is. And that, that's, that's the whole hypocrisy of it. You want to know why Christianity is dying across the world? It's because of hypocrisy. It's because people of faith who claim to be Christians only say it with their words, and they never connect their orthodoxy with their orthopraxis. And it, it, it's just... That, so what does that mean? I've heard that a lot. Say it again, and then can you put that into like, I didn't go to seminary terms because I think it's important. Yeah, absolutely. Our orthodoxy is our belief system. What we confess with our mouth by uh, developing a theological, uh, systematic theological uh, conscience that guides us. But we have to claim that. We have to write it down. This is what we believe as a people of faith. This is what I believe as a Christian. This is orthodox to me. But what has happened, and it's happened throughout history, but it's happening in a, a, a much deeper and destructive way than ever before, is that what people say and what they say they believe does not connect with actually what they do and what really matters in the world. Um, you know, they say they love people, but they only love people if they convert to their belief system, if they only conform to their belief system, if they only confess their sins, the sins that they believe are sins and that they declare as sins, own, that, that's, it's, it's conformity. It's conformity and control. And so their praxis does not, their, their practice of theology does not play out with their belief system. They talk about love. They talk about grace. They talk about mercy, but only in the context that they are able to control other people and that other people will conform to them. That is absolutely 100% against what Jesus said when he was here on earth. Jesus said, love people. He said, love them in a way that uh, lifts them up he, he seldom talked about conversion. In fact, he never talked about conversion. All he talked about was stop sinning. He didn't name a whole lot of those sins, by the way. He just said, stop sinning, be baptized, and come follow me. But the most important part of that was to come follow him, become a disciple. You didn't have to set down the fact that you were a Samaritan or a Roman or a female or who you were at all. He simply said, come follow me and let's love other people as we are called to love God. And that's about as simple and true to the gospel as you can be. He never talked about, hey, you got to think it and believe exactly like this scholar or this uh, rabbi or this political leader. He simply Mm -hmm. said, come follow me and love God and love other people. And be generous with decency, kindness, and mercy. And I just don't see that from a lot of people who call themselves Christians these days. No, no. 
So a friend posted something from Micah Edmondson, mm-hmm. um, and it was posted on Twitter. It said, if Christians would simply listen to the cries of their own brothers and sisters in Christ, the church would be ahead of the national conversation about racial justice instead of behind it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. I thought that was so powerful. Oh, it's so powerful. In fact, it reminds me of the verse in Exodus where the Hebrews have found themselves in this terrible captivity. They're slaves to the Egyptian pharaoh. The pharaoh keeps piling bricks upon them and and demands upon them to to build and to build, and they continue to be more oppressed, and he takes away uh, the straw and pitch for them to make bricks, and he just, he continues to push down and oppress them. And there's this one moment in the first part of Exodus where it simply states, the people cried out of their pain and God heard them. Mm-hmm. Now, I want you to listen to what was not said in that particular text. It never said they cried out to God. They cried out from their pain, and God heard their cries. When I think about what's going on in this country today, when I think about my black and brown brothers and sisters, when I think about my colleagues and friends who are suffering from mental illness and financial collapse, when I think about the, the, the results of climate change out in the, in west, uh, the western part of the country, and I think about sub-Saharan Africa and the growing of the Sahara in a rapid way and the, the, the melting of the ice caps and all the things that are happening because of climate change. When I think about all the people who are suffering because of what's going on in this world, they are crying not out to God, but crying out of their pain. And I contest to you and to others that God is hearing those cries. And he is going to act in a unique and new way that we have never seen before. And hear hear my words on this. I think he is going to do it in non-traditional ways because the church has failed him in many ways. So God will make certain that justice and love and mercy are forever present because that who God, that's who God is. And if the church will not stand up and stand in the gap for these people and stand up for righteousness and justice, then God will use another means to bring that about. So mm-hmm. if it's the Black Lives Matter movement, if it's environmentalist, if it is, God forbid, people who are identified as socialists to make certain that income equality and health care is a common right in this world, then by God, that's what God is going to do. Because I because think... Because you wouldn't. Because the church wouldn't, not you. Right. Because the church wouldn't. Because the church wouldn't. And I'll say we. I am part of the problem. But I'm tired of being part of the problem. And I'm calling on all people of good faith to stand up, speak out, and act. And the first thing that you can do is in November, vote your conscience. Vote your conscience, engage in this system of ours, and make certain that decency and generosity and kindness and civility is on the ballot yeah. because it is 
too dangerous of a world these days not to or is too dangerous of a world these days to continue down this road we are heading it is yeah. not going to end well no so speaking of orthopraxy, we're about mm-hmm. to talk to someone who was like right in the middle of that practice. <laughs> Absolutely. We're about to talk to Sheriff Eric Higgins. Sheriff Higgins is an incredible man. We had such a good conversation with him this week. The first African-American sheriff elected to Pulaski County, Arkansas. Uh, he's got 30 years of police experience. He talks about what's going on uh, in the country regarding racial justice as well as police reform. So please stay tuned. And I promise I won't preach during the interview. <laughs> stay tuned. He might, though. That's right. Amen. All right. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly, and on this episode, we've got a very special guest with us all the way from Pulaski County, Arkansas, Sheriff Eric Higgins. Sheriff Higgins is a retired assistant Little Rock police chief and a 30-year veteran of the police department. He became one of the department's more visible officers through participation in several crime prevention programs and as a former liaison to the state legislature. In 2018, he was elected sheriff of Pulaski County, Arkansas, becoming the first African-American elected as sheriff. Sheriff Higgins, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I appreciate it. We are uh, glad that you are with us. And one of the things that we've been asking all of our guests since the pandemic broke back in March, uh, here in uh, middle America, at least, um, how are you doing? You and your family healthy? Yes, family's healthy. Uh, we're healthy. Uh, trying to adjust to the uh, to the changes. Well, good. That's good to hear. About, about all we can do. So speaking of changes, you... Um, have spoken about the changing approach to community policing, um, specifically within Pulaski County, but sort of almost like flipping the script a little bit. So instead of deputies going into communities and telling them, you know, telling residents what they need, you think deputies should ask what the residents need? Um, and how, how do they go about finding that out and what does that look like? You know, to, to make it happen, you have to be in the community and truly connected uh, to the community where they can, where members of the community can approach you. So you're, it's being uh, approachable. And then it's uh, having those contacts uh, and conversations with members of the community to see what their needs are. Um, I, I think that's so important to have that open dialogue. Absolutely. You know, it was inter- interesting in this, this conversation and, and the question in particular, I was uh, uh, having a conversation here in Norman, Oklahoma, several years back with a mutual friend of ours, who's now the chief of police at, uh, in Little Rock, uh, Chief uh, Humphreys. And, you know, we were talking about community policing and we were an open forum. And he said something that just struck me. And I just never thought about this. He said, you know, one of the worst things that happened to policing was the automobile because mm-hmm. officers, uh, you know, are now, you know, uh, locked down in that, that automobile. And, uh, you know, it takes, it takes effort to get out of the automobile and be among the people and be among the community. Um, mm-hmm. In what ways are you encouraging your police officers to get out of those kind of uh, – those arenas that have been built over several decades and getting face to face with the community. And I know that's kind of, that's kind of a sensitive subject these days uh, in, uh, in the era of COVID, but you know, the, the more relatable to communities. You know, and, and Chief Humphrey is right about the, the automobile 
but what we ask our folks to do is to uh, take a, at least a couple hours uh, out of their week to stop, get out the car, make contact with people in the community for a conversation. Uh, stop at your businesses and get to know folks. We we encourage them to, you know, schools in session uh, running normally to go into the schools and, and make contact with the kids there, you know, stop by for lunch, those mm. kind of things. Be intentional, have intentional contact with, with members of the community uh, in their areas that they're policing. Um, you, you've got to be intentional. And I, I think that is the, that is the focus on, on building a stronger relationship. Uh, you, it's not just responding to calls for services, but it's during those downtimes of having intentional uh, connections uh, with the community. And what are they finding out? I mean, it, it must. I mean, these conversations that are are happening uh, in Plusky Heights or Plusky County. Um, I mean, what what are, what are some of the surprising things they're finding from your residents? You know, I don't I don't know if it's anything surprising, but um, you know, a lot of times the only con- the only contact some members of the community have with government is through law enforcement because we're the ones that's in the community. Uh, uh, and accessible uh, to the people. So I I think um, uh, they're seeing uh, some of the needs in the community. Um, You know, know, for example, the uh, people are are struggling. There's people Mm -hmm. who who need uh, food. And, and, you know, we partnered with AT&T Arkansas to provide what what is called uh, patrol packs. And it's about a three days uh, worth of non-perishable foods that we put in the trunk of the police cars. So when deputies come in contact with people in the community that have a need for food, that they can pull one of those patrol packs out of the car and give it to the community because it's, you know, we want to be a resource to the community. So I think they're, they're seeing those needs and, and then uh, seeing other needs that normally uh, um, law enforcement is not seen as a, as a contact for. Uh, we've tried partnering with another group uh, called City Serve, and it's uh, working through uh, several churches. Uh, and City Serves has, has not only they have some food, but they also have you know bedding, uh, furniture, things like that. And and so we're trying to make those connections to to meet the needs in the community. And I, I think what's what's happening is uh, uh, when you're normally doing law enforcement duties, you're there to to respond to a, to a call. What is what's the disturbance? What's the emergency? And respond to that and deal with that. Um, we're having the opportunity uh, to, I'd say, to take a step back through these contacts. And it's not about enforcing the law or anything like that. It's about seeing the needs in the community. Mm. And I think our deputies are seeing some of the, the community needs. And then so we're trying to make those um, connections with resources in the community so that we can be a, a, an advocate or a conduit um, to meet those needs. Do you so think do you consider oh, that as part of the role of a police officer? Because there's been a lot of debate around that, that we are asking police officers to shoulder community health, public health, social services, way beyond the scope of what your position was intended to be. Well, I think the intention in the, of law enforcement is, is prevention. We're, we're there to prevent crime, not just respond to crime. You know, uh, Sir Robert Peel's and his principles on policing, um, I can't remember exactly, 1889, something like that, or 1886. Uh, one of the things he said was to uh, evaluate the effectiveness of a law enforcement agency 
it's, it's not the how many tickets you write. It's not how many arrests you're making. It's the absence of crime. And so mm-hmm. our primary po- purpose is prevention. And so we have to look in the community and see what are the issues that, that lead to uh, um, people committing crime. There, there's uh, basic needs that people have. You know, if a, if a child's in the home, if a teenager's in the home, and, and mom can't keep the, the lights on, and they don't have a bed to sleep in, what are the chances of that individual being involved in criminal activity to bring resources into the home? And so we have to be sensitive to those needs. And if we can address the, the primary needs of people in the community, I think crime is a, is a byproduct of something else. Mm-hmm. And so if we can meet those basic needs in the community, I think then we'll have an impact on, on crime. The, the results will be lower crime in our community. You know, and, and if those who say law enforcement needs to get out of all those things, then all we're left with is responding to calls for service. And then all we're doing is writing tickets. All we're doing is making an arrest. And then we become simply an enforcement agency in the community. Mm. And that's the last thing we want. We want to be a partnership in the community. We want to be seen as a resource we're part of the community and we're empowered by the community. So we have to help to meet the needs in the community. Sheriff, one of our board members, uh, Dr. Terrell Carter, uh, is a former police officer and we've had him on the pod before and he was addressing the very thing that you were talking about um, and and the need to humanize uh, the police as well as uh, the public. Uh, introduce, reintroducing themselves to one another uh, to, to share their stories and, and, and to really reveal a shared humanity. But more specifically, what he said that really struck me, and I want to ask you about this, because you said, you know, one of the prime responsibilities for policing is prevention, which I wholeheartedly agree. But one of the criticisms that Dr. Carter had was that the system itself is built not on the incentive incentives of being uh, a preventing crime or de-escalation. And what he meant by that is you only get promotions for arrest or for, and you know, there's, there, he, he seemed, he was talking about that we've got to incentivize this preventative uh, philosophy that you're talking about. Is there a way to do that in the current system? And I mean, are you doing that? And it's hard to quantify, it is, yeah. right? Like you can check a mark for arrests or tickets, but it's hard to quantify. Like we brought food to this family in need. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you, if we change our focus mm-hmm. uh, from the number of arrests. I mean, I've heard people talk about the cops cop, you know, and generally that's somebody on SWAT that's uh, aggressive, that's making a lot of arrests, a lot of drug arrests, things like that. We have to change our focus and it takes the administration of police agencies to change the focus from the crime or the arrests to the absence of crime. Is crime going down in the community? Not our arrests going up. Our crime, because you can have arrests going up and crime go up at the same time. What we need is, is the focus on a reduction in crime. And, and what we need is there has to be a change in, in, in county government, in, in city government, municipal governments, on how they fund law enforcement. Because, you know, you, you look at when crime goes down, a lot of times your, your prevention programs, things that were successful, uh, the funding for those things go down. You know, when you look in the 90s when you had uh, community policing, 
Now that was a, a grant program uh, provided by the federal government. It only paid X number of dollars per year for these cops, now the cops grant for the uh, community police officers. And, but every year that money went down and the cities and municipalities had to incur those expenses. Well, as crime went down, what you saw was those positions going down. Now, the agencies didn't say, or the, the municipalities didn't say, we're cutting our community police program, but they just cut your staffing or cut the funding for the staffing. And it's our primary responsibility is to respond for calls for services. And as our staffing goes down, then we end up with fewer uh, officers to do the prevention uh, programs. So it's going to take a, a, a holistic approach to how do you battle crime in a community? And it's dealing with the underlying issues that lead to a person committing crime. So obviously, let's switch gears a little bit, but I, and it's really not too much of a switch because what you're talking about is reforming policing. And it's an, and when we say reforming, that we all understand that is an ongoing process. I mean, we're reforming good faith media on a weekly basis as well. I'm just uh, trying to keep up with them, really. <laughs> uh, that's true. That's true. Um, <laughs> But this this moment in time, Sheriff, is unique, I think, and we all recognize that ever since the death of George Floyd. And there's so many other deaths. We don't want to, you know, leave all of those out. You know, Breonna Taylor, uh, Ahmaud Arbery, um, so many, so many more. And there is this unified call from especially uh, the African-American community, uh, communities of, of minorities and, and people who have been concerned about uh, the direction of policing over several decades uh, and kind of this, this mentality. And it's not just policing. It's, it's the entire judicial system, uh, you know, just that it seems to be slanted in one direction. Um, when you and your fellow officers hear about these calls for reform, um, you hear the chants, you know, defund the police. Um, I just want to get your reaction to that. I mean, how are, how's the police holding up in the, how's the sheriff department? How are you holding up in the midst of this very tenuous circumstance that we find ourselves as a, in a country? Well, I'll tell you for the sheriff's office, um, you know, uh, this is my second year in office and we've been uh, moving in the direction of reform uh, anyway. So for me personally, uh, what is what has happened, these unfortunate incidents that have occurred, it has opened the eyes of some uh, uh, quorum court members to recognize that what I've been trying to do is what people want. Um, and so it's benefited me uh, in some ways. Um, you know, I am concerned that this moment will pass. The only reason we, this country, paid attention to Mr. Floyd's uh, death as closely as we did is because of COVID-19. Mm -hmm. If COVID-19 had not happened, if the this country hasn't hadn't paused for a moment. You pulled sports off of TV. Other things happened. People were home with, uh, um, you know, isolating themselves. Uh, so people paid attention to to what was going on. They watched the video and watched it a number of times. If we're not careful, this moment is going to pass us by. We need real reform in the criminal justice system. 
It's not just law enforcement, and, and we need our reform. Uh, we need pressure from the outside to do the right thing, uh, to be held accountable. But we also need individuals coming into the organization to be a part of the organization, because true change in, in a police organization, long-standing change is going to occur internally. There will always be pressure on the outside. But are we going to try to manipulate are we going to try to sidestep the laws of their past? What are we going to do? Um, so we need people coming into the profession, understanding our partnership with the community, understanding the prevention is, is what we are about, what we were initially focused on in law enforcement. Um, so it's, it's going to take that. Um, you, you have uh, some deputies who are, are maybe frustrated uh, maybe thinking that uh, the pressure is all on them. Um, you have officers and deputies that say that uh, uh, we're being uh, lumped together as a group. Mm-hmm. Um, some bad officers have done some things, and, and but you're holding us accountable to that action. You're including us with that group. And, and some people may not like this, but, but what I say is that um, to those officers saying that, and now you know what it feels like to be an African-American male in this country because we are lumped together in a group. We are a threat to the community or perceived that way in, in circumstances. That is both are wrong. Both are absolutely wrong. And we have to change the mindset of the community of, of, of who and what is an African-American male. And then we have to have a, a realistic view of law enforcement. Most police officers do the right thing. Uh, not every good person makes a good police officer. Mm. Good police officers sometimes make mistakes. Sometimes they do things that are just absolutely wrong. In some cases, you have to separate them from the agency. In some cases, they have to be uh, charged. They should be charged. Um, but, but we have to approach this as a needed uh, change in, in law enforcement. Um, we've got to change our mindset. You know, we, we've gone through phases in law enforcement uh, from uh, being more professional in the 90s, wanting to be a professional, I mean, the 80s, wanting to be a professional organization, emphasizing education in law enforcement. And then we went to uh, uh, community policing in law enforcement in the 90s. And in the late late 90s, I believe, early 2000s, we evolved into an enforcement agency where, where we're getting more uh, uh, military equipment because we're enforcing the laws. Now, uh, having uh, um, high-powered rifles, things like that, is necessary because of the, the environment we're in, what's out there, what, what, what we're facing. But there's got to be a balance in that. And I think we need to go, our, our new phase where we're at is we will see. Are we going to be more community-focused? Are we going to be safety-driven, integrity-based? That's an excellent answer. Thank you so much for sharing that. You know, I'm, I'm going to ask you somewhat of a personal question, and if you don't want to answer it, uh, feel free to, to pass on it. Okay. Um, but when you and I first spoke on the phone uh, setting up this interview, you talked about the history of policing and mm-hmm. you know, its, its origins that are very much rooted in racism. Mm-hmm. Now you're the first African-American sheriff in Pulaski County, Arkansas. As an African-American male, and more specifically as an African-American police officer, now sheriff, do you find yourself pulled in two different directions? 
No, um, because and I, I say this, my, my primary focus is my faith. Mm. Uh, my, my belief in God, my belief in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And, and my goal as a, as a person, as a husband, as a father, as a sheriff, is to bring honor and glory to God. I fail all the time, but that's my focus. Yeah. And, and so I'm not pulled in any direction. Um, it's frustrating. Um, I mean, the, 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 the things I've, I've uh, experienced, even as being sheriff or being elected sheriff, uh, being accused of being the most racist sheriff there ever was at Pulaski County. <laughs> uh, well, being the only black sheriff in, right. in 200 years, the, the sheriff's department, uh, and I, I feel blessed. I was elected in, in, or, or took office in 2019. And uh, June 19, 2019, the Sheriff's Department celebrated 200 years mm-hmm. of existence. Um, so I, I'm blessed to be in that position, but yet I'm the most racist sheriff there ever was. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I, I knew that coming in that I was going to face some opposition uh, and, and things would be a little bit different for me. Uh, I cannot do what the previous sheriff did. I cannot, I have to be aware that anything I do uh, is scrutinized uh, to a different level. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's unfortunate. But in every step, um, try to do what's right. Um, that, that's my goal. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. So as a person of faith, what do you think one thing people of faith misunderstand about police and then what do you think one thing police wish people knew about them? Uh, we're not, for, for those of faith, um, we're not perfect. Don't assume that. You know, uh, um, sometimes we have faith, we, we want to, uh, we want to see the best in everyone and, and we want to lump everybody in as the best. And we discount the negative that law enforcement does. And we need to open our eyes and see the truth. Um, look for us to, to uh, be what God has called us to be. Uh, you know, God wants justice. God wants us to, to care for people. You know, the scripture speaks uh, several times about, you know, justice for the, for the, uh, for the orphan, for the homeless. And, and we are to instill justice. And so hold us accountable to that. Mm. Um, when we're doing right, celebrate that with us. Encourage us. Um, but hold us accountable too. Um, from the law enforcement perspective, what do we want people to know? We're human. Mm. Um, we're trying. We need your support. Uh, what we do, is it worth it? Do, do you see value in what we do? You know, a lot of times law enforcement, we get the, uh, sometimes a pat on the back and say, thank you very much. Uh, but when it comes to um, sometimes funding some of these agencies, we hold back. We're not a necessary evil. We're, we're a part of society. And, and it's expensive. 
but we have families and we're trying to take care of our families too. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what uh, law enforcement wants people uh, to know that we're human and we have a responsibility to take care of our, our family and our kids. And, and we want the same things you want. Um, and sometimes in this job is, it's very difficult to, to do this. If you look at the suicide rate of, of, of uh, police officers, you look at how long it is once they retire and, and how long do they live before they pass away. Look at the, the dangers of the job and the stress of the job of day to day. Some of the things you see day in and day out. So Sheriff, it sounds like what you're saying in essence is that, yes, there are a lot of really critical, difficult issues that we need to be addressing when it comes to policing. But at the same time, we have to draw the conclusion for good reform to take place. We've got to do this together as communities. Communities have to come together uh, under the banner of local, state, federal organizations that we are one community living together within a shared humanity uh, to, to to ask these tough questions, to deal with these difficult issues, but to find constructive ways to move forward to make it, as the Constitution states, a more perfect union. So thank you so much uh, for being with us today. Uh, Autumn, ask our guests a final question each and every time. So Autumn, take it away. Our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So in light of everything we've talked about today, what is your more to tell? Oh, gosh, we're doing so much. Mm. Um. We're, we're trying to work with the communities, you know, it's, it's not just uh, what we're doing on the street is as a detention center, we have a, um, a reentry program trying to help people to be restored to our community. Um, we, we can't throw people away. Just because somebody has a felony record doesn't mean uh, that's who they are. It's part of their experience it's part of their life, but it doesn't define them. And if we're going to have an impact on our community, we have to work on prevention. We have to work with our youth. We have to work with people who, who are coming out of prison. Uh, I think we do these things. We, we will be a better community. And um, it's so much more we have to do. Well, Sheriff Eric Higgins from Pulaski County, Arkansas, thank you so much for being a guest from or guest on the pod today. You are always welcome to come back. And just on behalf of our organization at Good Faith Media, I just want to say thank you so much for what you do for your community. Thank you for your deputies and all that they do. We know that this is tough, tough work in a difficult time. But as we said, together, we can get through it. Uh, All the best, my friend. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mitch. Thank you, Autumn. Well, thank you for joining Good Faith Media or Good Faith Weekly this this week on our podcast. We want to invite you to come back next week. Make certain you subscribe so you can hear all the episodes. And as always, remember this week, practice some good faith.